Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, during February, it's February, it's Love Month. This is uh, Love Month, right? It's Valentine's Day is tomorrow. I know. Uh, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Um, last, I've been talking about, uh, about love through the course of the month, and we, I, I mentioned last week that the, the language that the Bible was written in Greek, New Testament Greek, that ancient Greek, there were, there were at least four different words for love. In, in ancient Greek. And so there's a word that, that we kind of translate as affection. And I talked about affection last week. That's the love that happens between, between family members, specifically between parents and children and children and parents, but also among siblings and spouses. And affection is, is familial love. It's a, it's a love that really is based a lot in, in our need for one another, right? As children, we need everything that our parents give us, food and shelter and and connection and affection. We, we need that as, as children. And, and as parents, we, we kind of have a need to, to help our children survive and thrive and, and carry on. And so we, we have a need for our kids in many ways. And so that, that really is affection, that sort of need love in, that we find within familial units. In, in ancient Greek, but not in the Bible, there was a, a word that we would translate more as... as uh, Romantic love, eros is the word. We get the word erotic out of it, so it's more about kind of a consuming love. And uh, I haven't decided if I'm going to talk about eros or not. I, can, I think I'm going to skip that one. Because it's not actually in the Bible, uh, but it, it is an ancient Greek word for love. And then there, there's agape love, which is selfless love. When, when Jesus asked Peter, did you, do you love me? Are you willing to, to lay down your life for me? He, he's asking, do you... Do you love me with agape love? And so next week we'll be talking about that, and Brooke Thomas will be preaching about agape love. She doesn't look surprised, so we're, we're good. Um, we're, we're still on plan uh, for, for that. So this week uh, I, I have decided to talk about friendship. And I talk about friendship really on purpose right before, before Valentine's Day because our experience in in another culture, our experience, well, our experience in our own culture in in the U.S. is that uh, Valentine's Day is very much about romance, isn't it? In in the U.S., that's really what what Valentine's Day is all about. It's uh, Singles Awareness Day for for some people. It's uh, it is it is it is a romantic day. But our experience in in Ecuador was that Valentine's Day was was the day for love and friendship. El día del amor y la amistad, day of love and friendship. And we always in our experience in Ecuador, and maybe it was just the church culture in Ecuador. Maybe it wasn't the broader culture, but the church culture that we experienced in Ecuador really did seek to celebrate friendship on, on Valentine's Day. And so we, we would always, with our seminary campus community, we would have a big party to celebrate friendship on, on Valentine's Day. We'd have a white elephant exchange a couple of times, I remember. I remember I got an empty spray bottle on the white elephant gift exchange. I didn't feel like particularly loved with, a, with an empty spray bottle, but it was the thing I got. So that's uh, the, the day of love and friendship is just sort of this idea that we have that, that Valentine's Day, this, this saint of love, should be celebrated with, 
with love. And love isn't only romantic love, is it? Love is friendship, and, and so we can make this day about friendship. So I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about friendship today. Maybe the most notable thing about friendship as a, as a kind of love is the fact that it, it really is about the least natural form of love that we can think about. You know, I, I mentioned how, how natural, how almost primal affection is. Last week I talked about just that, that sort of it is, it is deeply rooted in who we are as humans and our desire to, to survive as a species, right? The, the affectionate love within family. But our love for, for our friends is not, is not necessary in any, in any real way. Friendship is, can seem very optional, in, in our world. And, and so the benefits of friendship are very real, but they're not, they're not connected. Friendship is not connected with our instincts for food or shelter or survival in any way. And so friendship is, is then just this sort of unique, unique experience. It's a different kind of animal as we think about love. And, and so these qualities uh, of love mean that the, the fact that it's not natural means that we, we often have to fight against our own instincts in order to remain in friendship. We, we, have to, we have to do what doesn't come naturally to us, in fact, in order to, to be friends. And so because of that, throughout history, friendship has been exalted by great thinkers. Like Plato and Socrates, they talked a lot about friendship which I'm sure you're just dying to hear. You're just, at the mention of Plato, you're like, oh, where's he going with this one, right? Uh, Plato and, and Socrates, they taught a lot, about, a, lot, a lot about friendship. But then through history, Christian thinkers have, have also thought and taught a lot about, about friendship because of this, this way that it seems to cut against who, who we are naturally and how we are wired naturally. Friendship calls us to be something more than, more than we are and different than we are. But friendship can be challenging. For that reason, friendship can be challenging, right? Alyssa and I were talking this week about friends that we had as, as younger people. Growing up, friendships are hard, right? You go to elementary school with this group of people, and then you show up at junior high, and all of a sudden your best friend from sixth grade doesn't talk to you anymore. And that's just kind of weird. And why does that happen? It's because friendship is hard. And, and as you grow and mature, friendship, friendship doesn't get a lot easier for adults, does it? It doesn't get a lot easier as, as adults as we continue to, to mature and, and grow and our interests change and evolve. Friendships kind of come and, and can go, and, and friendship can be a difficult thing, even, even as adults, to, to connect well one with another. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about the different types of love, and one of the things that he says about friendship is it's, it's not enough to just want to have friends to make friends. In fact, the people who just want to make friends, just want to have friends, often have the most difficult time making friends and keeping friends and having friends. He says that's because friendship is, is a, the connection we have with people who see the world in the same way we do. Friendship has to be about something. Lewis says, even if it's only about an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice, friendship is born out of mutual passion. And so friendship, friendship doesn't just happen because we want to sit down with somebody and, and suddenly become a friend. Friendship happens because we, we recognize that somebody sees the world in the same way that we do. Lewis says that friends see the same truth. 
So, so it may be a companionship, it may be an interest, it may be that uh, the friend that you make is, just thinks the same type of car is cool that you think is cool. You, that, that friend sees the same truth as you, or, or sees that the same dog breed that you think is the best dog breed is, is the best dog breed. And, and so that friend, you know, maybe it's just a very tangential thing to your life. Maybe it's not central to who you are, but you, that friend, he or she sees the world, sees the same truth you do, that, that this game of dominoes is the best game of dominoes. And think about all of the intricacies of it, right? The, the, we see the same truth and we have the same passion as one another. But friendship also often involves doing something together. Because, because of our passion that unites us often, it means that that passion is an activity. That passion, that passion drives us to, to be together. And, and so I know that when I get together with friends, often we'll play games or we'll go hiking or we'll talk about the things that we're passionate about. Uh, together. And the, the, the activity that draws us together is often a, a cover for the deeper connection we have. And so we, we see the world through the same lens, but, but we, we get together to, to do something that's maybe not connected to the lens that we see the world through together. And so some of my best friends in the world are Nazarene pastor type people. And I get together with Nazarene pastor type people sometimes to go hiking or rock climbing or do, do crazy things. And this is kind of a cover for us to get together and, and we can grouse about the same things that bother us in the denomination, the reports we have to fill out and the, the things that just get under our skin a little bit here or there. But we also connect because we, we see the world the same way. We are committed to reading scripture and preaching it the same way. We're, we are committed to trying to live out our calling that we believe God has placed on our lives in, in the same way very, very much of the time. And, and so we, we recognize that mutual passion that God has given us to, to draw us together one with another. The Bible has a lot to say about friendship. The Bible has a lot to say about, about the idea of this love that, that is so unnatural in, in so many ways. There, there is, um, there's an idea of being a friend with God. Actually, Scripture talks very little about this idea of being a friend with God, but for some reason that kind of comes to mind when we think about being Christians. There's a, a worship song that says, I'm a friend of God, I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. It's a great song, I like it. The, the, um, the people that are called friends of God in Scripture, it's a very short list. There's actually two. Uh, there's two people in Scripture, Abraham and Moses, who are spoken of by, by the prophets as people who sat face-to-face with God and had a conversation with him like a friend. And so that, that idea of being a friend of God, it's a, it's a very, it's a small, small group of people that, that have experienced that. And, and so while, while friendship with God isn't, isn't spoken of as, as a widely experienced phenomenon, the Bible does talk a lot about people being friends with Jesus, and Jesus talks about his friendship with people a lot during his ministry. And one of the most interesting aspects of Jesus' friendship with people in, in the Bible is the idea that Jesus would be a friend of sinners. This is an interesting thing to me because, because he doesn't shy away from the title of being a friend of sinners. Now, it's mentioned in the Gospels of Luke and in Matthew. In, in both of those Gospels, they're, they're very similar passages. They're parallel passages. 
And so I'm going to look in, in Matthew, in chapter 11, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he's complaining a little bit. He's complaining about how people have come to listen to him, but they don't accept him. The religious culture in, in his world had no, no categories to put Jesus in, and since they didn't have a category to put him in, they were just going to reject him. And then he, he notices that John the Baptist is kind of the same way, that the, the religious world had no categories for John the Baptist, and so they wanted to just get rid of him. And so he, he talks about this in Matthew 11, verses 16 through 19. I think it's on the screen. Hey, look at that. Uh, Jesus says, To what can I compare this generation? It is like children playing a game in a public square. They complain to their friends, We played wedding songs for you but you didn't dance. We played funeral songs, and you didn't mourn. For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, but you said, he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. So Jesus is just annoyed, right? He's annoyed that John the Baptist came, and he didn't look like anything the religious people expected, and so they rejected him. And then Jesus came, and he was the opposite of John the Baptist. He didn't look anything like the religious leaders expected on this side, and, and he, was, he was rejected. The thing that I notice in this passage is that Jesus does not reject for himself the title of friend of sinners. Jesus says, they call me a friend of sinners. He doesn't say, and I'm not. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus was fine with the title. He, he says, you call me that. It, it is his own behavior that gets him that title. And, and so if he's annoyed by anything, it's, he's annoyed by the fact that, that uh, being a friend of, of sinners and other tax collectors was a reason for other people to tune him out. And Jesus' behavior is what got him that label, and, and so he's willing to spend time with people who weren't living up to the standard that was set by the religious establishment. And Jesus explains his behavior in other parts of the gospel. He says, uh, it's not the sick who need a doctor, or no, back that up. It's not the well who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And so Jesus is, is meeting with people who, who don't look like they're on the right path, but Jesus was willing to have friends from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of, of opinions and a variety of lifestyles. He was friends with partying tax collectors. He was friends with religious zealots. We, we read stories about Jesus going, at least one story of Jesus going to the house of a Pharisee for dinner. He, he was willing to, to spend time with anybody who would open, open their doors to him. And Jesus, Jesus tried to influence his friends and his followers to be slow to judge others and quick to make friends with those that they didn't see eye to eye with. And as a, as a friend of, G, of sinners, we see Jesus act kindly toward those who don't deserve his time or presence. It's a little bit comical to think about the holiest person who ever lived you know, we can have this picture of Jesus just like sort of floating around, just this holy little bubble, and, and can't even look upon sin. He's just so holy. And somehow this holiest person who ever lived acted in such a way that other people called him a friend of sinners. 
he was, he was willing to dirty himself. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, maybe a little bit comical, but realistically, you're no better than the sinners that he hung out with. You don't have any more right to Jesus' presence than, than the sinners that Jesus hung out with. I don't have any more right to Jesus' presence than the sinners that he spent time with. Jesus graciously gives his presence to all of us. We, we all receive from him the free gift of his love and, and presence in our lives. It's not, it's not because we're so good. <laughs> it's not because we're so good. It's because Jesus is so kind that we get to spend time with Jesus. And so Jesus made specific mention also of his friendship with his disciples. They didn't deserve it either, but Jesus was friends with them. And so he, he talks uh, about his friendship with them in, in his conversation with them in the upper room in, in the, the night before he was betrayed or the night he was betrayed. In, in John chapter 15, we read some of Jesus' words about, about friendship. One, one article I read about friendship in the Bible said, this is the most important teaching about friendship from Jesus in the whole Bible. Uh, and, and so in John chapter 15, we, I'll start in verse 12. It'll also be on the screen, but John 15 verse 12 says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name, using my name. This is my command, love each other. So throughout this long, long section of teaching that Jesus does, it starts in, in chapter 13, uh, goes all the way through Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus uses a number of different metaphors to talk about his relationship with his disciples and his relationship with his father. And, and right before this, in verse 9, right before where I started reading in John 15, in verse 9, Jesus talks about how he has loved the disciples with the same love that the father has loved him. And so you get this picture that Jesus is about ready to have a, a fatherly conversation with his disciples. He's about ready to, you know, kind of take them on his knee and, and tell, them, tell them what they need to hear. And, and then Jesus kind of changes, and, and he begins using this, this friendship language. And he talks for, for the rest of, of that little paragraph about friendship with, with Jesus and, and he says in verse 14, you are my friends. You are my friends. And then there's an if. You are my friends if you do what I command. Uh, I don't know about you. When I think of friendship, I don't think of ifs. <laughs> when I think of friendship, like the type of friendship that I want to have with people does not come with many ifs. I, you know, I love you. If you tell me that I have to be a fan of the Rams 
and cheer for him in the Super Bowl, to be your friend. That just, I'd still be your friend, I suppose, but I might not cheer for the Rams. Um, if, if you tell me that I have to, you know, I have to love, love what you're passionate about or, or see the world exactly the same way as you do in every area of life, you know, friendship doesn't seem like it comes with a lot of ifs. And so it's really, it is interesting to me that Jesus says, if you obey, obey my commands, um, it, it sounds like kind of being a fair-weather friend, doesn't it? We, we don't like fair-weather friends in our culture. We, we, don't, we frown on fair-weather friends. And so Jesus' condition on, on, on friendship with the disciples, it's not a trivial matter. It's not something that we can just like jump over really easily, I don't think. It, Jesus says that we are his friends if we obey his commands. And, and he's just got done giving us a command and illustrating what that command is in verses 12 and 13, where he says, this is my new command that you should love one another. And then what does he say? What's that love look like? That love looks like there is no greater love than if you lay down one's life for one's friends. Um, and so Jesus is essentially saying, if we can just like compress this down a little bit, uh, if, you, if you want to be my friend, you need to be willing to die for me. Uh, you, you need to be willing to die for, for your friends. And, and so maybe it's okay for Jesus, right? Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. Maybe it's okay for Jesus to, because he's like, he's above us. This seems like a friendship with a hierarchy, doesn't it? I like to think of my friends as people that I'm like shoulder to shoulder with. We're equals. I'm, I'm equals with, with people I'm friends with. This seems like there is a hierarchy involved. And Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. There's a sense in which Jesus can never be equal with anyone, right? Because he's divine. He gets to say he is God incarnate. Jesus gets to say if when it comes to friendships that, that he has. And, and maybe by virtue of, of his divinity, it's impossible for Jesus to have friends who are equals. But Jesus is also fully human. He's also fully human. And so if, if Jesus is fully human, then there's definitely got to be a way in which he could, he could have, it should be completely normal for Jesus to have shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder friendships with people who, who are equals, um, be, be a relationship like, like we expect uh, with friends. And, and so Bible scholars look at this passage and they say, well, Maybe this is like an ancient form of friendship. You know, the ancients, they had different, different ideas about friendship. Maybe this is an ancient sort of friendship that just naturally had some hierarchy built into it. And, and maybe this is, you know, Jesus doesn't have, doesn't have 21st century friendship in mind when he's talking about, you know, you can be my friends or you are my friends. Maybe Jesus was, was looking for, for more obedient servants that he just calls friends. You know, maybe that's, that's all that's happening here. Jesus just, he wants loyal subjects and he'll call you a friend even. Isn't that a great deal? Maybe, but when, when, we, when we look at how Jesus acts in friendship then with his disciples, it's, it's, um, we begin to realize that, 
that Jesus wasn't creating a hierarchy with himself at the top. Jesus, Jesus didn't, didn't, uh, didn't say, I'm going to give you all the rules, and you have to follow the rules, and if you obey all the rules, then you will be my friend. Jesus actually, actually lived out the command that he gave his disciples. It, the, the command that he gave his disciples was, was not just something for the disciples to check a box so that they could be called a friend with Jesus. The, the command that, that Jesus gave is how he shaped his own life. And, and so he said, if you're willing to shape your life in the same way that I want to shape my life, we're friends. We're friends. And so Jesus gives the command and then he, he lives it out. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just say, you have to follow my command and obey me because I'm God incarnate. And then we'll be friends. Jesus, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He says, friends lay their lives down for one another. And then he lays his life down for his friends. And, and so Jesus maybe does see a hierarchy in friendship. But Jesus sees that a friend always sees themselves as less important than the other. And, and this is obvious in, in verse 13. There, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There's, there's just no getting around this. This is Jesus' way of being a friend. <laughs> this is how Jesus is friends with us. This is how Jesus shows his friendship. And, and this is a real challenge in friendship. This is a real challenge in friendship when we, when we begin to consider how unnatural friendship is. When we, when we consider how, how not necessary friendship is. Because uh, it's, it's a lot easier to get worked up and get excited about like laying down our lives for our family, isn't it? Like it's, a, it's a lot. I, I mean, I could, I could really lather myself up and get real excited about laying my life down for my family. I could, I could do that. Um, you know, self-sacrifice is a part of family. It's part of affection. Affection is, is a love that calls us to, to sacrifice. If, if family life is going to be fun, we better lay down our lives one for another from time to time. But friendship, it, it just seems so optional. It seems so optional. So if this friendship is going to cost me a lot, <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, friendship, it's so easy in friendship to just say, eh, I, I can't right now. I can, when I'm available, I can help. When, I'm, when, when I get around to it, you know, I'll, I'll do that. Friendship can be a matter of convenience. And so in this way, Christian fellowship, as Jesus defines what fellowship is, Christian fellowship is completely countercultural. It's completely countercultural. When we are willing to prioritize somebody who doesn't obviously need to be prioritized over and above ourselves, this cuts against the grain of, of our culture, of, of who we are as people who look out for number one, baby, who... who do what we want to do. Do what feels good. You have your rights, after all. My goodness. C.S. Lewis identified the way that, that friendship 
is dangerous to the status quo. If we're willing to live in this type of friendship, people are going to, to take notice. They're going to be shocked. He says on a couple of occasions about how, how friendship is a sort, of, a sort of succession, even a rebellion. Friendship rebels against this, this cultural desire to, to look out for number one, to only, only watch ourselves. He also talks about how friendship is, is distrusted. Their, their authorities distrust friendship among their subjects. <laughs> when, when we're willing to, to connect with other people on a deeper level, those who, who would want us to only talk about the things on their agenda, the, the, when it's dangerous to tyrants, if their subjects actually actually commune one with another. They might get off the agenda of the tyrant. And so friendship is, is dangerous to our culture. It's dangerous to the status quo. But it gives life to those of us who experience it. It gives life to, to those who, who would be willing to lay down their life for others. Because this is, this is truly the message of the gospel, that when we give up our lives, we find it. We find our true life. There are, there are examples all over of this kind of friendship. There's one great example in Scripture I want to share with you from, from 1 Samuel, the, the friendship between David and Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4, we read this. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. Just so we're clear on our picture historically, Saul is king. David has been anointed to be the king and is supposed to take the spot, but he won't as long as Saul is living. And so Jonathan is, is David's son. Uh, no, Jonathan is Saul's son, uh, and, and he's hit it off. Verse 3, uh, And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. I'm really inspired by this idea that there's like immediate chemistry between David and Jonathan. Uh, verse 1 says in the last little bit of verse 1, there was an immediate bond between them because Jonathan loved David. C.S. Lewis talks about friends being destined for one another, that, that sometimes you just meet someone that is just, you just, a spark is lit. He, Lewis says, uh, quoting, quoting John 15, he says, Christ who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. We get this picture of Jonathan and David as being, uh, being ordained one for another. They immediately felt this bond. There's a chemistry as soon as they met. And it was a bond that ma they maintained throughout their lives, a, a bond that they, they experienced as, as even as Jonathan's father attempted to kill David and, and Saul was so jealous of David throughout. 
And Jonathan remained loyal to David because he recognized that God had truly anointed David to be the next king. He recognized that that God was going to use this man to do great things for, for the nation. And Jonathan was passionate to see God's will done through David. This is amazing humility for someone who, who is actually like directly losing a benefit. <laughs> it, the way succession works is that Jonathan should be the next king after Saul dies. Jonathan is choosing to give up that right and say, no, no, God has chosen David, not me. And so this allowed David to take the throne at Saul's death without, without further fracturing of the nation. There is no earthly reason, no earthly reason for David and Jonathan to connect on the level they did. But God, sometimes he brings great people together and they form a bond. It didn't make sense. It was, it was countercultural. It was, it was damaging to Saul. It didn't, it didn't make sense to anybody who looked at it that, that Jonathan and David would remain friends, but they, but they did all the way to the very end. And, and David and Jonathan were great friends. Another story of uh, friendship I heard this week came from my friend Troy. My, my friend Troy uh, is a unique, unique character. You might collect rocks or stamps. Troy connects friends named Tom. And so friend, Tom, uh, Tom, Troy has friends named Tom all over the country. You can, you can go anywhere in the world and find a, a guy named Tom that's friends with Troy. He, his brother is named Tom, too. And so Troy, Troy has an, an affinity for, for men named Tom. Uh, Troy met a couple of, of his friends, Tom, in college. That was a handful of years ago at this point. And uh, he, he remembers he didn't like one of the Toms at first. He didn't like one of the Toms at first because Tom was too humble. He's too humble. Nobody is that humble. And he, he, Troy just kind of, he, he thought it was a fake. He, he didn't think that Tom was, was a real deal. And over the course of their freshman year, their first year in school together, they, they got to know one another. Troy, I guess, let his guard down and got to know this guy that was too humble. And, and he found out that that humility was real and that Tom was a great Christian thinker and he challenged him. And he, he was a good man to boot. And, and Tom and Troy ended up rooming together through college. And, and then they still stay in contact all these, all these years after, after not having lived in the same town since school. They, they visit one another. Tom has been to the valley to visit. Some of you may know Tom, may have met him. And Troy goes down occasionally to Southern California where Tom lives and, and visits him. And, you know, it started out rocky. Troy would have said, we have no earthly reason to be friends. (laughs) I have no reason to be friends with somebody that's that humble. And they've been at odds at moments in their friendship. They've disagreed about things. And it's become water under the bridge. But they they remain friends because, because their friendship is a priority because they continue to reach out to one another and text and call. They've maintained a close friendship over all these years, even even after thinking, nah, 
not that guy. <laughs> Tom and Troy are great friends. I've always kind of considered myself lucky in friendship. I have a handful of people in my life who have been great friends that I haven't deserved. Uh, I've just been, I've lucked into this. I had, somehow I have friends from college and seminary and services and ministry. I have friends all over the world. It's amazing to me. I, I have some really, I have some friends that are great at being friends. And I have some friends that, you know, maybe once a year we still, we still talk and we pick up like, like we haven't missed a beat. When I think of one of, one of the people that I look up to most as, as a friend, I, I think of my friend Linda. Linda. Linda was a member of our church in, in Connell. Uh, Linda keeps up with every former pastor that has been in, in Connell. If, if there is a former pastor that is living from the Church of the Nazarene in Connell, Washington, Linda can give you his name and phone number. Uh, Linda has continued to send us updates on, on people uh, and, and what, what's going on and ask us how, how we're doing. So she writes to us to tell us about her family. She tells us about her three kids and her husband, Roger. And she tells us about all her grandkids. She tells us about people in the church. And she tells us about people in town that we knew that we, we've lost contact with. And you know, she, she keeps it. Linda is not a gossip. You know, there's juicy details that we would like to know. Linda just keeps us up to date on people's lives. She doesn't gossip, but she keeps us up to date. Linda, being a farming wife all of her, her life, uh, kind of the bane of her existence is that Linda doesn't really like to cook. And so not liking to cook, she, her husband doesn't farm anymore. She doesn't have to make big meals for, for farm crews anymore. But for some reason, Linda, one of the updates that she often will give us is how many people will be at her house for Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or whoever's birthday is coming up. And she's cooking for the whole crew. And, and so Linda will tell us not, it, it will always be her three kids and their families usually some of their in-laws. And then there's always the, the exchange student that she had when he was in high school, and he's gotten married, and he's a professor at Wazoo now, and they'll be driving over. And, oh, the family across the street, they don't have anybody coming around this year, so we're going to just have them too. And, oh, there's a family that's a little tight in the church right now. They need, they need a nice place to eat. And so we're just going to... And, and, you know, we can only do 28 around the table. We know we've tried 29. 28 is the most... So the kids are just going to have to be in the garage, and they're just going to have to be okay with it. They can make a mess and have fun. It's going to be okay. Linda doesn't like to cook, but she's going to, you know, she's going to have 40 people around, and it'll be all right. <laughs> Linda, Linda remembers our family members' names. She, she asks about my mom by name and my sisters by name. She knows my nieces and nephews. She knows some of my friends from college. You know, Linda, Linda asks after, after those people. There were two times I remember crying with Linda. One time she was in my office and she, she told an old story about a particularly hard time and, 
in her family. And she teared up. Linda hates to cry. Ah, I'm going to stop crying now, she'll say. The other time that she cried was when we told her that we were, we were leaving and God had called us to, to a new place. Two weeks later, she walked to our house, sat down on the love seat, and said, Roger and I will be supporting your ministry financially as long as you're missionaries. Linda is 80. I, I don't have a lot of earthly reason to be, to be friends with a retired school teacher and farmer's wife from central Washington. But Linda is a great friend. I, I hope that you have some great friends in your life. I, ho I hope you have some people who check up on you, not because you're so great, but because they are so great. I hope you have people who are willing to wash your feet, even if it's not their turn. People who are willing to show up, even, even if you failed to show up the last time. I hope that you have friends who you have not always seen eye to eye with. You've gotten over it and it's water under the bridge. And maybe it's something you don't bring up anymore, but you're still friends. I, I believe, as, as Christian believers, we are called to be this type of friend. And so I, I hope you will commit as, as a Christian to be the type of friend that, that doesn't get offended that it was you that called the last five times and so, gosh, okay, I'll call the sixth time. I, I hope you're the kind of friend that, that looks to do better to the other person than you look for, for your own good. So that regardless of what your connection may be, maybe, maybe you get together because you love a board game or German Shepherds, or heirloom tomatoes. Whatever it is that draws you to people in this world, I, I, I hope that you are willing to show a love that doesn't make sense in this world. A love that says, I want better for those people than I, I need for myself. A love that says, I will lay down my life <laughs> for my friends. The people I don't have to lay down my life for, I will lay down my life for them. But I think, I think as, as a body, I've seen it through stories that I've heard in, in this body. There are friends here who have laid down their lives for others right here. I, I, I know the connections. I know some of the stories, people who have, who have been there when, when there was no earthly reason, but God's put this love in your heart and so you've, you've loved on one another and you've been there when it's been hard. I think this is the type of love that changes the world. The type of love that, that doesn't have a natural explanation. The type of love that says, you know what, I'm just going to do what Jesus commands. I'm just going to be willing to love. I'm going to be willing to lay down my life for my friends. People won't understand it. <laughs> it won't make any sense. But it'll be interesting. It'll draw others to it. 
Others will see it and want to be a part of it. I think that's how we have, have a chance. We have a chance at changing the world. At least changing the world for, for a friend or two. Will you stand with me and let me, let me pray for you? God, we recognize that you have called us through your son to live in this type of love. That we would lay down our lives one for another. Lord, there are some people here who, who are like my friend Linda, who remember everybody's family member's name that they've ever met and, and ask after them and want to know genuinely how they're doing. Lord, there, there are some people here who, who genuinely want to be like my friend Linda, but struggle who recognize that this command that you've given us to love one another and to love one another to the point of laying down our lives for others. It's hard. It it doesn't come naturally. And so God, because we want to be the type of people that could change the world, Lord, we pray that you would work on us by the power of your Holy Spirit and transform us to be the type of people who would pick up the phone on the sixth time, even, even though we made the last five phone calls, who would be willing to show up in the middle of the night, we're tired and we don't want to bother, who would be willing to, to continue to maintain a connection, even though it, it's hard, the miles get in the way, who would be willing, Lord, to, to be kind even when, when the other isn't kind? And to let the hurts become water under the bridge. To continue on toward the future with the friends that you've placed in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the way that the We have not chosen you, but you have chosen us. And so as people who who desire to live in friendship with you, Lord, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes to those you'd put in our path, that you have destined to be our friends, and that you would help us, oh God, to love them with the love that Jesus loved us, would lay down our lives for those we, we love. Thank you, God, for this dear body. As we go into this day, may we carry this love one for another and for our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you go. Remember Jesus' command, love one another.